Welcome to the Elephant Conversations on the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is David D. I am an economist, co-founder, and columnist with the Elephant. Today, I am immeasurably honored and, and a bit overwhelmed, quite frankly, to be in conversation with Professor Joseph Stiglitz. That's right, Professor Joseph Stiglitz, presently Professor of Economics at Columbia University, co-recipient of 2001 Nobel Prize in Economics for his contribution to analysis of markets with the asymmetric information, former chairman of the U.S. President's Council of Economic Advisors, chief economist of the World Bank. I should add here one of two to win the Nobel Prize after leaving that position in not very good circumstances. Author of countless seminal economic papers. I don't know, Prof, whether people get to tell you their favorite. I thought I'd tell you mine. It's a sharecropping paper uh, from, I think, oh, 74. It shapes a lot of my thinking. It taught me to know that things aren't always what they look like. And I have never forgotten that lesson in economics from, from that paper. And of course, many books, I think, author of at least eight books I know of, including the very famous uh, Globalization book and its discontent. Um, here's one. As well as uh, most recent one, The Great Divide, and Equal Societies, and what we can do about them. And that's my autographed copy. Thank you very much. It gives me no end of bragging rights, that one. And finally, I think many Kenyans and East Africans will be surprised to know that Prof Stiglitz was a visiting scholar at the IDS, University of Nairobi, sometimes in the late 60s. Is that true? 69 to 71. Yeah, three years, two, almost three years. That's, that's amazing. We're, we're two separate summers. Yes, okay. yes. Okay. So welcome, Prof Stiglitz. Thank you so much for making time for this. I know how much demand uh, you, of your time there is, but first and foremost, how are you? How is New York? Well, New, I think that New York is defined by the constant sound of sirens every 20 minutes. Uh, it'll probably uh, occur during our interview. So you're never from... Uh, being reminded that we are at the center of the COVID-19 pandemic. And yourselves? Fine. We're fine. We're isolated. Uh, we don't go out very much. But uh, we've obviously been touched by friends who have died, acquaintances yeah. who have died. We, we are very aware of what it means to be in the middle of the pandemic. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think we, we, we're really sorry about that. Hopefully we'll come out at the other end much better. Now, I want to speak a bit about the economics of this thing. As economists, we can't help as much as we would like to talk about other things. There is a lot of economics about it. You have written, uh, I've seen the NOPED you wrote recently. I've been following someone like Paul Krugman and he said sort of things which resonate a lot with what I've been saying here about the responses. So I'm just sort of, can you give us a sense of what are we looking at? Are we looking at a great recession, a great depression or something else altogether? There's an Canadian economist who called Arminia Nizian, I read, she called it a completely different economics or something altogether. I know it's a tall order, but you're probably one of the few people alive today who can, who is up to the this task of distilling something which is uh, understandable to, to ordinary people. Uh, what are we up against? What are we doing? The origins of the economic downturn are totally different from any previous disturbance. Yeah. It's not a stock market crash like the Great Depression. It's not a housing collapse uh, like the Great Recession. Not the Fed stepping on the brakes too hard 
as in 1980. Each of those were defined precipitous decline in aggregate demand that led to a vicious cycle of more unemployment, less demand, and uh, the economy being mired in this long-run equilibrium, low-level situation, which it only got out of as a result of government action, government stimulus. And it was, in each of the cases, fiscal stimulus, not monetary stimulus, that had the most effect. uh, This is different because it is a disturbance not originating from demand, but originating from a virus. And the virus had effects both on supply and demand. People didn't want to go to restaurants, didn't want to fly, they didn't want to be in theaters, but they also didn't want to be in the workplace Mm -hmm. because a congregation of people posed the risk of getting the disease. But having originated as a disease, it is now having very large effects on aggregate demand. In the United States, we have 33 million new unemployed. The full unemployment rate estimated somewhere between 20, 25%, maybe even more. Uh, numbers like the Great Depression. So, uh, and firms are going bankrupt. Some very iconic brands have gone bankrupt and we're looking for more. And there would have been so many more bankrupts if the government hadn't poured in trillions of dollars. So whatever the origin, when you have so much unemployment, so much bankruptcy, it is going to convert into a normal economic downturn. Okay. So even if tomorrow we got rid of the pandemic, or more accurately, say six months, uh, if we were lucky, we'll be in a situation where household balance sheets have been destroyed, firm balance sheets will have been destroyed, people will be nervous, and there will be an insufficiency of aggregate demand. And so we will be in a weak economy for almost sure. We've never gone through something like this, so we have no historical data. And we could only make guesses based on what we know, how economic actors, uh, firms, household, governments behave. But on the basis of what we've seen in the past, we can expect, without government assistance, a very deep and prolonged downturn. Deep and prolonged downturn without government assistance. That's right. And the problem is, already on the Republican side, there is fatigue setting in. Government has never intervened on this scale before. They don't believe in government. One of the reasons why the United States was not prepared to respond to the pandemic Mm -hmm. is the Trump administration abandoned the White House Office of Pandemics, cut spending on the Center for Disease Control, Mm -hmm. allowed our stockpiles to deplete uh, necessary medical supplies, Mm -hmm. respond in to increase the production of tests or gear or protective gear, mask or anything, we've had a disaster. So <laughs> we, the Republicans were successful in destroying the capacity of the state. So when we needed it, mm-hmm. it wasn't there. You know, uh, Trump pro- was proud to say, we're going to make America number one. And he has. We are number one in the number of deaths from COVID-19. We're number one in inequality. And we are the leading country, even before the crisis, among the advanced countries in inequalities in health and declines in uh, life expectancy. Yeah, I've seen that data. Now that you're talking about those sort of things... You say a couple of things in one of your recent op-eds about developing countries. And I think three stuck out. You talked about the challenges 
of congestion in living conditions, health vulnerabilities for the disadvantaged population. You talked about the precariousness of people's life, livelihoods, living from hand to mouth, vis-a-vis poor social safety nets. We are very, very, that resonates with us very strongly. And you talked about the adverse impact of global recession and depression on developing countries' exports, on access to capital. Then you go and make a case for a debt moratorium. You talk again about a massive infusion of money by FIs. Uh, you made reference to SDR. I'll come back to that, that uh, using SDR. All this is really, really, really daunting and challenging stuff. So you're talking about a huge sort of global fiscal stimulus of, of sort. What's your sense of what developing countries can actually expect from the international, uh, from the global financial system? I know you've, you've had run-ins with these kind of interventions. I know from your, your writing on East Asian crises and, and many, many other things. What's your sense of what should be done differently? And, and what can we actually expect? For instance, the African Union has appointed a committee of very eminent persons to lead a mobil uh, an effort to mobilize external financial support. So what sort of would you advise them and what are your thoughts on that? So I think there will be substantial assistance in the provision of the basics of health, yeah. medical supplies, significant amounts will be provided through the World Bank, uh, the IMF, the multilateral institutions. So they can expect that kind of assistance. Mm -hmm. But the broader issue is that there is a very big global slowdown happening. Yep. Don't have the declines in GDP in Europe, United States, and even China mm -hmm. without impacting the emerging markets in developing countries. Mm -hmm. So as the United States went into a downturn, as I mentioned, we put in, depending on how you calculate it, somewhere between three and seven trillion dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, Kenya doesn't have a couple of trillion dollars to mm -hmm. uh, resuscitate their economy. Mm -hmm. uh, the emerging markets in aggregate don't have that kind of money. Mm -hmm. I was trying to mobilize the international community mm -hmm. on two big issues. One, using the special drawing rights, which is like uh, the ability of the IMF to print money yep. to help emerging markets in developing countries. Mm -hmm. uh, they could do about five billion dollars without going back to their shareholders, legislatures to get the approval and a debt moratorium. Mm -hmm. We got a debt moratorium for official assistance for the poorest countries. Yep. Of course, that doesn't apply to private credit yep. and it doesn't apply to emerging markets. Yep. So it doesn't, it, it's, a, 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 it's a step in the right direction, but very, very partial. Mm -hmm. But what will eventually be needed is more than a debt moratorium, it'll be a debt restructuring. Mm -hmm. And we don't have an international framework for debt restructuring. <laughs> yep. So unfortunately, uh, we're making the progress on both of these issues is very slow. Yep. I don't think the international community realizes that as long as the disease is on rampage in some parts of the world, and as long as significant parts of the world have a weak economy, mm -hmm. the world won't return to health and the world economy won't return to health. We're all in this together. Okay. And the message I've been trying to get across, and I think it's making some inroads, mm -hmm. but uh, it's uh, a hard slog going forward. And uh, what worries me is, uh, while eventually I think assistance will come forward, it'll probably be too little and it'll probably come much too late. Mm -hmm. So are you sort of making a case for more international policy coordination? That, that word went out of vogue 
uh, a while back. <laughs> Is that what we need to go back to talking about? Yes, we do need more policy, international cooperation, including policy coordination. Mm -hmm. You know, the it's iron irony of this crisis is that it has set in motion two trends going in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. One of them is uh, people are saying we have to withdraw from globalization. We, we become too dependent on foreigners. We can't even make our own masks. Mm -hmm. These come from abroad. Uh, a lot of, you might say, protectionist yeah. sentiment, nativism has grown. Mm -hmm. At the same Time, as in the case of climate change, we have realized that we share one planet yep. and we can't get away from that. Yep. And so we are highly interdependent, whether we like it or not. The carbon dioxide molecules don't carry passports, don't carry visas, nor do does this very nasty virus carry right. a visa passport. It just yep. goes where it wants to go. Yep. So we need global cooperation. Hmm. I think that's because abundantly clear. Yep. And I think two lessons uh, with respect to globalization, I know we were going to talk about that a little later, might as well mention it now, yeah. the two lessons, the extremes of hyper-globalization that yeah. marked yeah. the 1990s to 90s, early yeah. that's over. Yeah. That's over. Okay. Uh, we do need to cooperate. Okay. Good globalization. We need the good yes. globalization. So yeah, we're going to come exactly. back to that. But let's let's go back to the United States. Inequality in the USA it's it's really exposed for 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 everybody else to see. And of course, your book, The Great Divide, uh, and Equal Societies, and what we can do about them, really comes into play here. Um, I'll pick up just one phrase: America's socialism for the rich. Uh, and that's what we, I think we are watching, uh, playing out, the failings of the health system, uh, very mean labor protection, already tax breaks for the rich. Uh, what's your sense of how America will emerge out of this? Do you think, uh, let me use a pun, you know, I really like to see progressivism, you know, pardon the pun, trumping neoliberalism in, in, in America. Uh, I'm hearing, I guess I it's, think it's what I listen to. I don't know what the other five things. So I, th I would use an American expression, the jury is out. Okay. And we'll find a lot more about this in November. Okay. So there are two uh, very opposing trends. Yeah. I believe the dominant one is Americans as those abroad have seen so vividly mm -hmm. uh, the inequalities in every aspect of our society. Uh, they are angry. Yep. Uh, the money that was supposed to go to help the most vulnerable, our small businesses went to the millionaires. Yes. Uh, tax cut went to the billionaires. Yep. Uh, it was said, oh, this is going to trickle down in higher wages, it didn't. Yep. It said, trust us, going to invest more, they didn't. They just paid out big dividends and share buybacks. Mm -hmm. So there's a sense that you might call Trumpism, liberalism has failed miserably the vast majority of Americans. They know this. They've seen how the people who we depend on all the time, even the hospital workers, mm -hmm. uh, are uh, dying because we weren't able to give them tests and protective gear. 
uh, die for us. And we're sending them into a war and our government isn't able, able, even able to give them uniforms, uh, uh, the, the protection uh, that they need. Uh, it, it, it is uh, so disturbing. So, so I, think that, I think that view is going to dominate. It's so different from what Americans think of themselves. It's so different from what we want to be. Okay. The American dream has been shown to be a myth, uh -huh. and we we are in the process of creating an inherited plutocracy, oligarchy. Okay. So this will be a critical election. It yeah. will determine whether we go in the current direction, more and more inequality, or in the more progressive direction. Yeah. But it's more than stake in, in sense, you know, it, it, global leadership, America has withdrawn from the global leadership, yeah. but even our standard of living, what is the reason that we have a higher standard of living, so much higher than we did 250 years ago? This is one of the main themes of my most recent book, People, Power, and Profits. Yep. The reason we have a higher standard of living is science. Yeah. And uh the Trump administration has been proposing every year 30% cuts in science. True. <laughs> now, one of the reasons why we were so poorly prepared for the crisis is because our scientific establishment have been devastated. The Centers for Disease Control have been devastated. Uh -huh. But now Americans realize how important expertise in science is. Not perfect is perfect yeah but so much better than the recommendation mm -hmm. of trump how you deal with COVID 19 i i i, I assume you heard about his yes I yes, hate to yes, mention, yes yes dr that, uh, yes. drinking uh, certain products which will yes, kill you that, that's not yeah, that, that, Fairly. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is very that, I think that, that that will last a long time, I think. And uh, it's, it's unfortunate, it's emblematic uh, uh, in an unfortunate way, I think. <laughs> exactly. You're absolutely now, right. And it's I a good point to go that to. Was a strong, <coughs> yeah. That was a strong message yeah. to Americans. Do they want to go back to the kind of world where everybody uh, has folk remedies that can kill you, yeah. or do you want to have some? scientific yes yes yeah it's it's interesting when you put it that way it's, it's very very sort of uh, emblematic so globalization you said you're sort of going to move on to that and a good place to start for me is uh, globalization and its contents book uh, let me quote recent advances in economic theory ionically occurring precisely during the period of the most relentless pursuit of the Washington consensus policies have shown that whenever information is imperfect and markets are incomplete, which is to say always, and especially in developing countries, the invisible hand works most uh, imperfectly. And you have already gone into what I was going to raise, that these two contra contradictory uh, things, the, 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 the invalidation of, of hyper-globalization, the, the financial, the financial and economic sort of hyper-globalization, 
uh, as well as now the need for more cooperation and globalization on things like uh, global public goods, uh, which we are dealing with right now. We are dealing with uh, a, a global negative public good. Uh, because this uh, virus, as you said, moves everywhere. We have also climate change, carbon, uh, which is another sort of negative public good. But you, you said that globalization has succeeded in unifying people around the world against globalization. So how do we, <laughs> how do we respond? Uh, how do we embrace uh, global inter sort of uh, cooperation to deal with these global public goods, while at the same time uh, we uh, have an issue with the the, the hyper globalization financial um, corporatism that that we talked about. So, how do you see us getting out? Yeah. So uh, the point is very much the same as we talked about before. It's not globalization itself. It's the way we manage globalization. Yes. Yeah. Now, to make a, 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 an analogy, uh, I talked about the important role of government mm -hmm. in responding to COVID-19. Yeah. We need government. Yes. On the other hand, uh, government doesn't always act perfectly. Yeah. And I... Uh, some people say oh, to me, you have too much faith in government. Uh -huh. And I always on anybody who lives in the United States under Donald Trump knows that government sometimes doesn't work very well. Yeah. So understand that government is necessary if we are going to solve our collective problems. Yep. But also we need to make sure that government works right. Yep. And one of the yep. things that we've learned over the last 20, 200 years is a lot of the principles of good governance, transparency, checks and balances, separations of power, a whole set of things, which of course in, in Kenya, you've been learning about uh, uh, in recent years as well, uh, yeah. the difficulties of making democracies uh, work. Yeah. So um, the same principle is true about globalization. We have to make globalization work. Yeah. And that means it's even more difficult in some ways than making government work because globalization entails all the governments, each of which is imperfect, getting together in a multilateral context mm -hmm. and trying to make decisions for the whole world. Mm -hmm. But in spite of the fact that it's difficult, we actually have made some real successes. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the problems we had, you know, 30, 40 years ago with the holes in the ozone layer that uh, result in people getting cancer yeah. caused by uh, a particular kind of gas. And yeah. we forbid the gas and we succeeded globally and that those holes in the ozone layer are being repaired. Mm -hmm. So that's work. Uh, there is a global resolve to deal with climate change. Mm -hmm. We're working at it. We brought it down. We haven't done anywhere near enough. But at Copenhagen and in Paris, there were global agreements to do something about climate change. Mm -hmm. One country was a president mm -hmm. in Paris, the United yeah, States. Yep, yep. yep. <laughs> but, but there's a broad uh, consensus. Now, if you go down each of the areas of globalization mm -hmm. or problems, 
in my book, Make Globalization Work, I outline some of the ways you can go about resolving those problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, No perfect solutions. Politics is about compromise. But we certainly can make it work a lot better than it's been working. And we can make it work a lot better for developing countries and emerging markets work a lot better for workers all over the world. Do you think this might shock us into more progressive uh, sort of uh, thinking on this, in this, where we then end up with global cooperation on things like this, but at the same time you have a retreat from the a sort of hyper-globalization of, of capital? Is, 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 are those two yes, things, I do. I like, think that, can they go side by side? Well, I think the 2008 crisis itself was a defining moment mm-hmm. where we saw the dangers of hyper-globalization. Yeah. And if you look at the data after 2008, we saw there was already before the pandemic a retreat from hyper-globalization. So it was already underway. Okay. The pandemic is now making us reassess what is going on. There are a number of other forces that are causing people a reassessment. Um, you know, at, when the Berlin Wall fell, when the communist the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, Francis Fukuyama wrote a very influential book called The End of History, History. where he predicted all the economies would become market free market economies and all the countries would become liberal democracies. (laughs) Yeah, it seems a little bit like a fantasy, a dream now. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of people believed it and the ideas was globalized faster. Mm -hmm. We would all do more contact with each other Mm -hmm. and the good virus called liberal democracy and and free markets would spread and everybody would want that and that would become the dominant uh, set of beliefs, religion, you might say. But it hasn't worked out that way and we now realize that it's more than half the world is under authoritarian regimes right now, like it or not. And some are retreating, yeah. Yeah, so we are going to have to figure out ways of in cooperating with governments that we do not share values, that we may even be competing with okay. in many areas, okay. but and we may be fighting to persuade countries in Africa to adopt our model rather than their model. Mm-hmm. So there's be uh, a lots of competition, mm-hmm. but at the same time, if we're going to address problems of a pandemic, climate change, mm-hmm. we have to cooperate. So, so we have no choice. You say something. Gun. So we're going to have to figure out how to cooperate with countries that you may not even trust fully. Okay. But in the end, yeah. cooperation is so much better than not cooperating because if we don't cooperate, these global problems will get worse. And like it or not, even in the narrow area of economics, mm-hmm. we're so 
so interdependent mm -hmm. that the idea that we could divide the world into two, three, four blocks is, is itself a fantasy. Okay. So you sort of speaking to a more ecumenical type of globalization where, you know, different fates, <laughs> economic, political, exactly. uh, sort of... We may of, not respect all the other faiths. We may yes. not respect all, but yeah. we have to learn to live with them all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So that 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 then because round we can then go back to economics uh and ask uh what is the feedback loop? What is the likely feedback loop of this economics? I think uh you and I are probably past that stage, but there are lots of young graduate students who will be looking at what are the uh, sort of uh questions that it throws up uh, at postdocs and all sort of what are the questions that, that it throws up that will now become pertinent that, that, that they haven't been in the, in the recent past. Have you had some thoughts on, on, on the feedback loop to economics? Yes. Oh, there, there are many ways in which the pandemic and what's been happening uh, will, is forcing us to rethink economics. In a way, the parallel in many ways the way the climate change is forcing okay. us to rethink. Okay. Um, let me uh, just give a few examples. Uh, climate change is an example of a massive externality yeah. that the market can handle on their own. Pandemics are an example of a massive externality. Yeah. My going out on the street and uh, enjoying myself, mm -hmm. but spreading the disease is a very nasty externality. True. Yeah. It's a very natural, you need collective action mm -hmm. to manage any kind of externality. So externalities used to be taught at the end of the semester, if you were lucky. Yep, if you got there. Yeah. Needs to begin in the beginning of the semester. In fact, beginning of the course, if you ask me, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Now, yeah. another example is the standard models in macroeconomics mm -hmm. had this, it was called dynamic stochastic general equilibrium, equilibrium model. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Equilibrium was the key word. Yep. Now, people had this infinite foresight. There may be uncertainty, but they understood the probability distributions. My securities, all manner of things. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They calculated everything. There were good risk markets. Markets worked well. Yeah. Well, we saw in 2008 that model totally failed. Yep. And there was a kind of cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. They said, oh, it didn't work until 2000, you know, up to 2008, but beginning in 2009, we're going to begin to be in equilibrium again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 12 years later, we have another disturbance uh -huh. that they could not have anticipated. Mm -hmm. Life is full of things you cannot anticipate. Mm -hmm. And people know that. Mm -hmm. Even if macroeconomists don't know it, mm -hmm. every firm knows it. Every household knows it. Yes. They're a little smarter <laughs> than our macroeconomists. Yeah. Uh, th uh, they ought to talk to some other members of their families. <laughs> so the point is that macroeconomics 
has been a little bit like um, a medieval study of how many angels can dance on a pen. Mm -hmm. uh, totally devoid, divorced from what really happens in the world. So I think there's going to be another big change in macroeconomics, mm -hmm. recognizing the importance of uh, disequilibrium. Okay. I think one more point that at a practical level that is going to be important. Mm -hmm. In the crisis of 2008, we saw that markets were very short-sighted for a whole variety of reasons. Yep. We are now seeing again that markets are very short-sighted. Okay. They were not resilient enough. Yeah. We build cars without spare tires. Uh, we, we were proud in the United States that we didn't have a spare bed in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Well, that's all good if you don't have an epidemic. But mm -hmm. when you have an epidemic, not having spare capacity, you pay a very high price. Yeah. So efficiency. Efficiency becomes something to, to rethink. We think it's we thought of short term saving a penny today, yeah, without about the long term. So, penny that's wise, pound foolish, exactly. And our markets, we drove our markets in that direction, and it was a very big mistake. Economic theory explained what went wrong. The interesting thing is, neoliberalism never understood this. This was one of the points I made. In, in globalization and its discontents, and yeah. in the book Globalization and Discontents Revisited, and uh, People, Power, and Profits. Yeah. So, a core point of understanding why our markets are not working for most of our citizens. Mm -hmm. do, do you see something like evolutionary economics making it to the mainstream? Uh, when you talk about disequilibrium, uh, I think that's one of the sort of, sort of, uh, things out there that's trying to grapple with the disequilibrium sort of uh, systems, uh, which have permanent yes, implications. Do. do you see that sort yeah. of thing making it yes, Chicago at all? <laughs> Not in Chicago, but, but no, it's a serious part of economics asking the question of how do people adapt? Yeah. Uh, they don't solve a complicated, uh, uh, intertemporal maximization. Intertemporal maximization problem. problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the 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 Chicago School kind of people mm -hmm. always recognized people didn't solve that kind of problem. Mm -hmm. They only said the economy acted as if as they did. If. <laughs> now the interesting thing is, we saw in two thousand eight, we saw in nineteen ninety. We saw in 1980, we saw over and over again that that assumption is just not right. Yeah. And, you know, any model is a simplification of the world. Yeah. Uh, the problem was they made the wrong simplifications. Mm -hmm. What about integration of nature into, into economic analysis? Well, that will be one of the most important things going forward. I mean, climate change. Mm -hmm reminded us that we're not living within our planetary boundaries, okay. the environment. Yeah. And uh, when there were a few people in the world, those planetary boundaries, those planetary environmental constraints weren't binding. Mm -hmm. But now that we have uh, 
some seven billion people in the world, going probably to eight or nine billion people. Um, those planetary constraints are binding, especially with the advances in technology. So we have now reached the limits of those, and we have to come to terms with them. You, you think we will? In yes, economics, soon? Yeah, yes, I do. And the reason is, uh, you know, the, what gives me hope, young people, particularly in Europe, I spent the fall teaching in Europe, young people, particularly in Europe, it's so much part of the worldview. Okay. They understand that these, these environmental constraints mm -hmm. and they want to create a world that is consistent with it. They want to be able to leave something to their children and grandchildren. Okay. And that's uh, not the direction we have in the United States. Okay. So we're going to wind up. I'm going to ask you a sort of, uh, not personal, but professional question. What's your next project? What's your next sort of uh, thematic uh, area or focus? <laughs> Are you at liberty to, to sort of speak, to talk about that? Well, I'm involved in, in, in a number of, uh, uh, of projects right now, uh, uh, besides some of the things that we've been talking about uh today uh one of them uh uh is trying to understand more of the mathematics uh more the theory of income inequality and wealth inequality so a, okay. a subject that was part of my own dissertation yep. uh 50 years ago right. uh, and back to to visiting some of those issues with some of the advances in our understanding that have come in the interim. Probably the most exciting to me uh, project that I'm engaged in is a variant of behavioral economics. Okay. You know, the, uh, when I was a graduate student, uh, there were a number of things uh, that I was taught by my teachers that just didn't make any sense. Okay. Uh, perfect markets, perfect information, uh, and I spent a lot of time working on, on those assumptions. But the other assumption was the infinite rationality of individuals and that they entered this world with well-defined preferences. Okay. And uh, preferences aren't uh, affected by your interactions with other people. Yeah. Uh, they are they're fixed, they are sovereign, they are taken as they are. That's right. Yeah, give it. And I've been, for the last decade, I've been involved in a, a, a project of trying to understand more deeply the determination of preferences, mm -hmm. how individuals affect society's preferences and society's preferences affect individuals. So sort of bringing together sociology and economics. And economics, yeah doing work particularly in the context of development but going well beyond that uh, and we're finishing a, a book on the subject uh, right now so that's that's a project i'm probably most excited about right that's now exciting. yeah that's, that's that and subversive that's <laughs> that's a subversive subject as far as you're really pulling a very big building block of uh, of, of 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 neoclassical economics uh, I don't know if you pull that one out, what remains. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think we are trying to reconstruct okay. our understanding of uh, how we interact together to create a, a society, including the allocation of our resources. Okay. So, Professor, I, I have, you have given a lot of your time. You have, and now this is an amazing conversation. I think for me, it's probably uh, the most memorable and uh, significant uh, outcome of uh, externality, positive externality of uh, of, of COVID nineteen. So, thank you very much. Can, can we have well, occasion to, to revisit this? Good. Subject? And next time I One of these days. Yeah. See each other. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you so much.